couple of things um, I wanted to just mention. I actually, I'm just going to jump right into a, a couple parts of Scripture that really kind of was kind of on my heart once we started worship. And so, uh, if you would turn with me to Revelation, and we're going to look in Revelation chapter four. Tonight we're going to be going through the uh, Old Testament book of Zephaniah, and. Uh, I'm sure my time in preparation for that has had some uh, portion of influence in my thoughts on this first time in Revelation as far as discussion, or at least consideration. We see in Revelation, actually, chapter 5, verse 9, that in heaven there's this moment in time to come when they sing this new song, saying... You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Going on down there, picking up in verse 12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Stepping back over to chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And thinking about that glorious declaration, um, that time of praise and worship, different groups, as we see, you know, we've recently went through in a verse by verse study of Revelation, and we've seen some of the times that these expressions were made. I much. There's many more times that the expressions of worship are um, presented in heaven and even today in our time. One more I'd like you to look at, so we're still here in uh, Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 15, prior to the bowl judgments, there's another expression, a declaration, an example of praise. It begins in chapter 15, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. With that, let's pray. God, as we would approach your word tonight, we confess we we don't really know it. We can't really figure it out from just um, mental training and human exercise. We believe your word to be true, that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, for these things are spiritually discerned. Spiritually, we need you to reveal that we could grasp. We need you to uh, open up Scripture to us that we would comprehend, that you would write them on the tablets of our heart. That we, God, would not only look at this portion in Zephaniah, but we would do it with an awareness of what we just read, Lord. That you are the creator of all things. Your timing is perfect. Your ways are perfect. You are worthy of our praise. And so, God, we just thank you. You'll teach us. You'll walk us through your word. You'll prepare us for the day and the time that we live in. You'll give us an awareness of how to put into practice what you show us that we would walk with an awareness of your presence 
that we, God, will be your people for your purposes in this day and this time. Until you call us home as a group in the rapture or until we go home one by one before that glorious time of the rapture, whatever it may be, may we be your people about your work for your glory and for our joy. Thank you, Jesus. Teach us even tonight, God. Thank you. Amen. All right. Well, journey with me, if you would, from Revelation. Take a left and go way back. Take the way back machine. Go to Zephaniah. So you may want to memorize the order. The latter parts of the book are Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you figure out a way to say it, you might be able to remember it. So I have certain things that I kind of put in rhyme, order, illogic, whatever it may be. But Zephaniah is where we'll go tonight. Now, you have a handout, which I believe is very helpful. Um, I'm a very uh, studious person. I went online and stole it. So that's kind of where it came from. I uh, looked at a couple of this one I really liked. Because when you're reading in the Old Testament, sometimes isn't it difficult to get the historical arrangement? Because the Bible isn't set um, dogmatically or a sense absolutely in regards to chronology. Yes, we have Genesis and Revelation, the bookends. But as you read through, you see some of them, especially in the prophets, they're not set in a chronology. It's hard to get the association between what prophet was speaking under what king, at what time, what was happening, what was taking place. So you'll notice on your handout, there's a little uh, dove on the left, very small, marking Zephaniah, telling us um, roughly the time that it took place. And so that handout, I think, is just a, it's a nice reference point to which prophets were speaking at which time, and whether they were speaking to the, the northern or the southern tribe. Let me... Uh, give you an overview, a very brief, but I believe helpful overview of the Old Testament a little bit, primarily centering or leading to what we'll be looking at this evening, uh, kind of Israel's history in a nutshell. It was a family that grew into a nation while in captivity in Egypt. Remember, they went in as a family. And they come out as a nation. God actually delivers them. God used Moses uh, as a leader to take them from e- Egypt towards the promised land. And it's, we know towards, right? Because that generation didn't arrive. And there's a reason for that. Because as he takes them towards the promised land, you know, there were some issues. Primarily the people were complaining. No matter what God did, they always had a yeah, but. You know what a yeah, but is? It's just that. Yeah, but. You know, something. Oh, well, I, I agree this was good, but. They, they consistently have this complaint. Now, let me pause just for a moment. When we read the Bible, we even seen in Revelation, we read that we should stir, be stirred to somehow, do we, how would I apply those songs of praise and that adoration? Where I'd, I'd apply it from the relationship I have with God. I'd want it somehow to be a practice, to be some form of expression of what is a realization, or maybe to a degree a revelation. God reveals to you and to I, and to me through the Word. So even as we're reading through this intro, or I'm sharing with you through the intro, or as we're digging into this particular book, we want to be open to what God would show us for application. And I mention it now because, you know, we can get the yabbits just as much as anybody else. 
just as much as that generation that, that was, oh, well, yeah, this didn't happen, and this didn't get fixed. And, and consider, because when he protected them, they complained. When he provided for them, they complained. When, you know, it just, it, whenever he did something, they complained. And when he led them toward the promised land, they complained. We were better off where? In slavery. We were, and, you know, we think, man, how could you get so messed up? Well, just look in the mirror. When you get immersed in your circumstances and you interpret Scripture or God's presence according to how you see your circumstances, you're, you're always going to find reason to complain. Instead of learning to look up and say, okay, God, I don't get some of this. I'm, I don't understand some of this. But thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, God, for what you have done. And so they complained. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, gives us an insight to why they did not get to experience the, um, the blessing that God had for them in the, in the land of promise. Uh, it's spoken as a warning and a directive, if you would, to you and me. It reads this way. This is Hebrews 3.12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's speaking of that generation because not only were they just complaining, but the core of complaining, and the center point, if you would, and constant unhappiness and criticizing is unbelief. And God actually calls that type of unbelief. He says it's, it's, it's an evil heart of unbelief. It's not just logic, which would deduce or realize, rationalize circumstances and then find the pluses and the minuses. That's not what it's talking about. Because you could come up with, yeah, we have that, but we need to see this. That could be actually a good point of prayer. Like, well, we've seen God provide here. Now I want to see this here. Yeah, yeah, we're looking forward to this. But the evil heart was rooted in unbelief. Yeah, God, you did that, but, you know, and I think you get it. I think you, most of you have studied enough and, and realized that that's just something that God is just, he just says, listen, I'm, I won't tolerate it. It tears you up. It rips you off. It rips other people's off. off. It misrepresents me. And so we we're told that this complaining group that um, were the ones that wandered in the wilderness missed what God had for them. And their children were the ones who got to go to the promised land led by Joshua. Well, the Israelites settled into their allotted areas. And then, you know, as they settled in, they were under God's rule. And the instrument in a civil sense and even in a national sense was that the rule came through the judges and the prophets. And maybe you've read that portion of the Old Testament history and such. But you remember what the people said? They wanted to be like the nations around them, so they demanded God give them a king to rule over them. And God tells them it's a bad idea. If you have a man ruling over you, that man will feed his appetites. He will compare to his competitors. He will try to be the best of whatever he determines is the best. He will take your best children. He'll take your best livestock. He'll tax you. He'll take from you. And they're like, sounds good to us. It's really odd that they here we're, we we whine about taxes and that type of rule, and here they were saying, you know, no, we we want to fit in, we want to be like them. They insist they would rather have a, a king; they'd rather have kings rule over them. So you probably remember the first king, 
King Saul. He literally physically described as head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the kind of leader that most, in a natural sense, people look for. Someone who has stature, that carries himself, they represent strength. They just seem to be the one to follow. That's why people, even when Jesus came, didn't want to follow him because he didn't have that stature. It was, he, he wasn't leading on a natural sense the way people would look for a leader. But anyway, King Saul, you know, he starts out pretty good. Starts out pretty good, then gets stuck on himself. And he becomes a people pleaser. And he becomes consumed with what people think. So that he turns from God's leadership in his life. A lot of practical principles for our own life as I'm going through all of this. God then raises up King David to lead this unified nation. David also starts very well. He does good at the beginning. King David, though, we know has some challenges and and makes some horrible mistakes. But even with his terrible sin of adultery, the murder and cover-up, trying to hide it, this is an interesting thing about David. He remained teachable before God. It says that, you know, that David was a man after God's own heart. A very unique statement only said about David. God may have that view of other people, but he only documented it, so to speak, about this one man, David. Well, we know David didn't finish that well because of his sin and because of the consequences of that. His family come apart, the kingdom come apart from his, in regards to his leadership. Well, after David, we know, was um, his son, King Solomon. Solomon starts out humble and obedient to God, but, yep, he turns from God's lordship and does whatever he wants. Multiple wives, trusting in horses and chariots, rather than trusting God. You look at what God told him not to do, and it's like he, knew, he just did that. And, and, and what's interesting is I think he was benefiting from some of the things that even Saul had kind of established a little bit in regards to military prowess and where Israel was. And then David really expanded on that, was really a strong leader in um, not only in his military might and as a, as a military leader, but he was also a very compassionate leader. He had that unique blend of the military power, that type of a person to lead, but also a poet, a, uh, a really good statesman, if you would, um, a shepherd. Interesting mix, but the nation really, there's a lot there. So when Solomon comes along, functionally inherits a lot of good stuff, even though the nation, there, was a, there was a lot of other problems. Well, I think in that whole thing, as he begins to rely on himself, he isn't trusting God. God gives him wisdom beyond any other man, quite honestly. He pours into him. He, he pours many of the Proverbs we have in that particular book, or, or the word of God come through the heart of Solomon. But Solomon begins to rely on counselors rather than seeking God. And the nation begins to crumble. King Solomon dies. And Rehoboam reigns as king. Rehoboam has no concern for God, the son of Solomon. He has no concern for God. He asks his immature friends to advise him. Maybe you remember the story. I'll tell you a little bit of it. But at the advice of his counselors, King Rehoboam taxes the people heavily. It says this in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. And it shows the terrible attitude that Rehoboam had. I call it an entitlement attitude. My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father 
chastise you with whips, I will chastise you with scourges. He whipped you, I'll rip you up. I mean, he was that. Think about that attitude of indignance, uh, indifference, arrogance. Well, in fulfillment of prophecy, the ten northern tribes rejected King Rehoboam's leadership, and the kingdom was split. Sin always brings division. Of course, you know, both groups were convinced they were right before God which is always the case with sin. Both parties seem to think that they're, they're right and the other one's wrong. The northern kingdoms made up of ten tribes. Um, it's referred to the tribes of Israel. Well, the southern tri- uh, kingdom has two tribes, and it's Benjamin and Judah. It's called the kingdom of Judah. So the prophets, as you've seen maybe from your handout, the prophets ministered to both kingdoms, but you may have one prophet to the northern, one to the southern, different time, different ruler. And so to the northern kingdom, we have Jonah, Joel, Amos, uh, Hosea, uh, Isaiah, and Micah. To the southern kingdom, primarily, we have Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. Some of the other prophets spoke to the time of captivity because the Babylonians and the Assyrians will be the instrument that God will use to discipline his people. And so these people, the Israelites, both the northern and southern kingdom, will be taken into captivity. Well, the t- prophets that spoke during the time of the captivity were Daniel, Obadiah, and Ezekiel. And there's some overlap on there as well. And then we have Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They're the prophets that are referred to as the prophets of the return to Jerusalem. So you think of Daniel's prophecy. Daniel actually has quite a range on his, what he was. I mean, anyway, he, he encouraged people as they're going back. So that's the background as we look into this book titled Zephaniah. He's a prophet to Judah during the reign of Josiah. It begins in verse 1 of Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So here we have a little insight into Zephaniah. We actually are giving you know, four generations of his background, which is he's the only prophet that, that really gives us a lot. You notice that? Some of them were told, well, he's the son of this, or he's this person from this city. Um, I don't know why. I, nobody, I, I studied a little bit, and nobody really could pin down why it's the case. Zephaniah's prophecy, which we're going to get into here in verse 2, uh, was probably near 621 B.C. It's the time of reform that you read about in Kings. You read about where um, King Josiah brought about an amazing reform. He really said, hey, wait a minute. We are not following this. We are not doing this. And, and many believe that Zephaniah was that one who brought this strong word into the kingdom um, as G- uh, Josiah was leading. But in 621, there was a significant reform taking place And we'll know, we'll see here as we get to chapter 2, verse, um, actually verse 13 to 15, specifically verse 13, that Nineveh hasn't been destroyed yet. We know that took place at a specific time, 612 B.C., 621, Josiah, because it's B.C., you're counting lower, and 612, Nineveh hasn't been destroyed. So that's the framework, the timeline we can see that this would have been brought forth. And so the reform of Josiah, stirred by the word of the Lord from Zephaniah, produced outward change, but not an inner change of heart. 
We know that because the corruption and the disobedience toward God continued in the nation of Judah. So I, I say we have application because we're going to see in this, there was a, a, a relatively, we could say, immediate um, fulfillment of this prophecy within 20 years from when Josiah um, would share this and then even to where they were taken into captivity. I'm not Josiah, but Zephaniah. So there's that immediate fulfillment. We'll see a ton of uh, end times fulfillment because of what we're seeing is going to be things that we know will fit into the end times scenario revealed um, a lot of what we see in Revelation. But we also have what I think of as a personal, a practical, a contemporary national. I don't dogmatically say it applies to Judah and now it applies to us. But you can't look away from the principle and the truth. You don't want to say, yeah, this means us too. Like, well, I do want to say, hmm, if he judged his chosen people this way, would he not judge others with the same, if not maybe more of a harsh hand? And so when the nation received direction, the nation, well, both Judah and Israel, those two nations, and they turned, even like we know Nineveh did at the preaching of Jonah. But they didn't, they didn't say the course. They turned, but it wasn't a change of heart. It was a change of expression. Oh, we got to clean our act up. God's going to be ticked. we got to get it together. We better straighten up our act, which is what we hear in our world today, sometimes. Other times we see, what we're going to see in this study, the arrogance of indifference. It's like, God who? I don't answer to God. He's not, he left. There's no God. And a nation, or a time, and an age when people are so indifferent. So continuing on, where the great day of the Lord is the subheading as we lead into this next section. It says, speaking, God speaking through Zephaniah, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks, well, it's basically idols because they were once again being wholly given over to idolatry. Stumbling blocks along with the wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous, priests with pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So we know Manasseh, which is King Josiah's grandfather, was notorious for idol worship and mixing their variation of idol worship with pagan worship, bringing it in, taking what was contemporary beliefs, culture, and blending it into God's directive or what God had, how God had instructed them to worship, which we know happens in the church even today. It happens among God's people. They increased and advanced in their level and manner of idolatry. That's what we see in this first portion is he's, he's just describing some of these t- uh, objects of worship and the pagan worship. Because see, idol worship in that day is, is categorized in the same things we're exposed to. It's sin. And sin, when you sin, you always go deeper and deeper into the pit. Is that not right? 
when you make a sin, when there's something you know you shouldn't do, like, ooh, I should not do that. But for whatever reason, you climb that fence. It's hard that first time. Sin, actually, there's an excitement, the Bible says. There's an excitement to sin. Because it's like, whoa, it's like an adrenaline rush. And it's like, oh, the thrill, whatever it may be. And then it's like, oh, no, then the guilt and the shame when you're on the other side of the fence. But you continue on that same path of sin, and the next fence is not so hard to get over. The next time it's the same thing, but it's, it's, you see what I'm saying? It's just easier. And you, th- you can just fill in the blanks on whatever you have known to be a challenge or a temptation in your life. Israel, once they started idol worship, they just went where they never thought they would go. They went to where they were literally offering their children they were literally heating up these, these man-made shapes and figures and calling them representation of a God with arms outstretched, heated up, and they were literally offering their children, literally cooking them to death as an act of worship. They were involved in gross immorality, sexual perversions. You know, I'm talking about then, and you're thinking about now. I hope. I hope you realize that there is no difference. The things that we are doing in the humanity, there's nothing new under the sun. It tends to repeat itself. And we're at a point in history that we're, in a sense, repeating this principle, if you would. What was okay 60 years ago but questionable is not even questionable now. And you know that. I don't even have to cite examples. You're fully aware of this progression downhill. And that's what we see from this text. That they went from this, and then you notice in verse um, uh, verse 4, the names of the idolatrous priests with pagan priests. So they went not only from entertaining what they shouldn't to intertwining and, and you know, kind of inter, intersecting and, and making it, it was just what they were going to do. And I, I don't mean to belabor it, but I don't ever want to read through Scripture and say we got it done. I want to be open to what God would maybe put upon our heart to be aware. Hey, don't go there. Be wise, be alert, be awake. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. You know, in every generation, there's a remnant. In every generation, even in the most terrible times in in Israel's history and human history, there's always a remnant. Think about what took place. You know, even in the intertestamental period, that 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament, there were people seeking God. They were as genuine and as real and as humble. They were seeking God. In the, in the time they were in captivity, when they were led away by the Assyrians, when they were captured by the Babylonians, when they were in the darkest days, as a nation, there was always people who were genuine, real people. I call them common people. They're just people that didn't have, you know, the religious status. They didn't have a national position. They didn't have the notoriety in the community necessarily. They were just real people that love God. And they were learning how to do it and they were genuine. And that's what we refer to as the remnant. Those God, there's always been those people. And so as you see, you know, there's those who have turned back, but then there's others that are, that we'll see as we go along with this remnant. Let's move over to, we're on to verse seven. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. So, be silent in the presence. It's a silence of reverence and awe. It's 
not it's leading into a, a shock and awe, if you would, because of what God is going to do in response to their rejection. For the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes of the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. So he's saying, you know, it'll, in the day of the Lord, there's those, you know, who will, they've, they've um, clothed with foreign apparel, conveying to you and I, they've, they've not necessarily just intermixed by marriage, which God had told them not to, but they intermixed the culture and they conformed to the culture. So the, the teaching of the day and the common thing and whatever was being accepted because the nation, the leaders were corrupt. So now they're accepting it into their practices, if you would. It's kind of like today where the church, in some situations, is trying to fit into the culture. And you can't. You have to have compassion and kindness. You've got to be willing to see how have things changed. How can my methods bring honor to God as I present the truth? But you can't find yourself agreeing with the culture, thinking that somehow that will create a, an evangelistic moment or something like that, which is what's happening right now. People are saying, well, as long as you're this. It's like, no, you can't, you can't you know, get rid of truth in the hope that later you can speak about truth. It just, it's illogical. And we see this is an example of it. The, the, the people, you know, there was the, the, they were clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, verse 9, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violent and deceit. There were devious and violent servants who overthrow or undermine authority. We have it going on right now. There's a popular group that's tagged Antifa. I really don't know what they're supposed to be. I just know what they do, and you know what they do. Aside from what the mass and common media credits them for, we know that they're very similar to this. They just, they just, they're devious and violent, and they overthrow and undermine authority. And they're not the only group. They're just the one that's maybe well-known, but it's a, it's a thing that's happening inside of a culture. When there's a culture clash, it always is, between what God has established and directed and those who don't want to follow God. They want to deny his existence. They, if, they, if they acknowledge his uh, ability, well, his title as creator, they don't want to be under his authority. They don't want to follow his, his directive or his instruction for life. So there's this clash. So moving on, let's take a look and kind of flow through this next section. There shall be on that day, because he's speaking of the day of the Lord that's going to deal with um, the nation at that time, Judah. And then there's also this, declaration embedded within here as we know it's also going to speak of the day of the lord in the end days you know right at the time of revelation at the time of the great tribulation and the things that he'll be be dealing with verse 10 there shall be on that day says the lord the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate a wailing from the second quarter and a loud crashing from the hills wail you inhabitants of maktash For all the merchant people are cut down, and those who handle money are cut off. Merchant people would be businessmen, uh, influential people, um, those who really were able to handle the money. All this is all this this monetary system that they know. We know when you're when you're taken into captivity, your coins don't count. 
That makes sense. And it's really kind of what we're, you're going to see, we know, in the end times as well. Moving on to verse 12. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in the heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. There's a complacency spiritually that can creep in on humanity to where we're like, I don't know, I mean, it just the world just is what it is, and it's how it is, and it's how it goes, and you know, good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, just all the God doesn't really intervene. He is saying he's gonna deal with that. Therefore, verse thirteen, their goods shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out that a day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. The great day of the Lord is near. Turn me with me, if you would, over to Second Peter. Just briefly, we'll look at a few verses there. You probably know where I'm going. Second Peter, chapter three. So, the day of the Lord is near. To them, it would be within two decades, but the other fulfillment of that prophecy would be thousands of years, is still to come. But in Second Peter chapter 3, Beloved, I now, this is verse 1, I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So he's, I want you to remember this, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by Zephaniah. Well, it actually says the holy prophets. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So it happened in the Old Testament, this mindset. It happened at the time of Jesus. It happened because he spoke of the, the the day of the Lord is at hand. We know here is Peter's writing, you know, many, many years after the resurrection. He, he's aware of what people are saying. That, yeah, yeah, I've heard all this. Verse 5, for they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They willingly forget. So that's Dumb on purpose, right? If you choose to remove it from your memory bank for whatever reason, however, I don't know how you do that, because you don't want to, you're saying, well, the day of judgment's not coming. It's not going to happen. I've been hearing that forever. Well, would you willfully forget a thing called the flood? The flood was what? It wasn't just a big pool. It was a day of judgment. And God said, listen, you people have rejected me, and they're, they're, they're increasingly violent. The days of Noah are described as what type of days? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which I'm sure you can think about today. But nonetheless, and he said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge that. 
And so we know he did. That's why this, this um, the most traumatic and cataclysmic time in the history of the earth took place. But, but people want to forget about that. Even though current science can show you that it didn't take millions of years for this all to happen. It could have been just spoke into existence and then this certain, you know, geological column gives strong support to a lot of water and then no water. And so anyway, you can dig into that thought on your own. The point being, they willfully forget that the water, the world was per- being flooded with perish. Now verse 7 and for- Second Peter chapter 3, referencing this mindset that's, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before. You know, God's coming to come back. Jesus is coming back. Yeah, the day of the Lord. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That the Lord, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Continues this, what we, this thought out of Zephaniah in verse 10 of Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will be melt with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Returning our thoughts back to Zephaniah, there were the remnants, the, the people that were really God-seekers in the midst of a nation. Is going to, they're going to get taken into captivity along with those who were rebellious towards God. But I would, I would say that they, they were looking forward to his promise. They knew he was a righteous God. They knew the day would come. They were aware of it. Others who rejected it, denied it, pretend like it wouldn't happen, which has been common in every generation, will be shocked. As we look in Zephaniah, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastens quickly. Picking up in verse 16, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Those were areas that were so significant. They represented so much in that culture. They were, the, the, they were the, not only the position of prominence, but power. No, they couldn't see anything that could take them down. But God can take them down. Anyway. God can do in a, in, a, in a snap of the fingers what humanity can't even do. He could do with one storm what took generations to build. You know, you could build a great wall around China, but one storm will just eradicate it. You know, it would, it's like nothing happened. And, and, and he's basically saying, people forget this. I, verse 17, I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. So this is a strong and powerful prophecy and declaration. You know, no matter what people were trusting in, 
their silver and their gold because that, that was the monetary system. You acquired that. It was something you could it establish you. It's, it's, you could say for us even today, not even technology would, would, will be able to stand against what God's doing. Not even AI. Not even your ChatGPT or whatever it may be because you know, there's a lot of things happening that are just not being presented that, are, that should that scare us a little bit. What, what AI, this artificial intelligence, and what they're able to do and the potential of what it can go to is shocking. But, you know, God can do in a moment what that can... I mean, what happens if you were just able to just shut off the power to something like that? You could flip the switch. That's why I'm not real big on, like, an electric car. Because somebody else can turn it off from somewhere else. But then I woke up and realized in 2015, we bought a 2014 Nissan Rogue. Nissan offered us this opportunity. Hey, would you like to pay another $400 so that if your car is stolen, we can, shut it, we can find it and shut it off? And I'm like, no, that's what I have insurance for. Someone steals it, they can have it. I don't care. Why would I pay $400 more? But then I thought later, like, wait a minute. You can find it and shut it off for that reason, but no other reason? Wait a minute. And you think about it, but what if God's the one who says, I, I can control electricity because I know some things about it you don't know. He can shut things down. And everything that seems to be like our, our backbone, our strength, our identity, corporate power, social media, all these things that are just amazing in a lot of ways, they're nothing. I mean, he literally just shuts them down. I mean, he, he can deliver people from them. Chapter 2 begins a call to repentance. What's interesting is you'll frequently see in the prophecies the declaration of coming judgment, but the mercy of God, because there's always an invitation to repentance. There's always even an exhortation to wake up. Don't just keep going along thinking it's all going to work out. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Undesirable there speaks of of shameless. You're, 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 you've done things that are shameful. So it's not desirable. It's like, well, I don't want you, but it's just a shameless. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. This always begins at a personal level before it's a public level. What I mean is he's not saying, hey, let's organize and let's start a movement and let's prevent these things from happening. He's saying you personally, you seek the Lord who have upheld justice. You've got to maintain your character, your integrity. You know, there's a movement always and every crisis facing the, the globe there's always somebody that thinks, we got to rally together and stop this. And I love it in a social sense, in a group sense, but it's not necessarily in a true sense. There's just some things you're just not going to stop. It doesn't mean you just like, go oh, whatever, I'll just do whatever. No, you do what it says here. You maintain character. You maintain integrity. You who have upheld justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. And that's in your own life that you may be hidden, and that you would experience God's mercy. People went through terrible things, and I know there was many who went through with a sense of joy, not happiness, but with joy. You know, even though they're going through God's judgment, and, and quite honestly, they're getting judged as a nation, but yet they didn't see God as doing them wrong. I thought, God, you're right. 
I don't know, you know what's going to happen, or what's, but I still trust you. And in the hardship and the difficulty that come upon the nation, they grew clo- They were closer to God, which you can see the importance for us. Now in verse 4, it begins a judgment on the nations, and it's going to talk about the, the Philistines and these cities and regions where we're, we're constantly, they were just you know, perpetual enemies of God's people. For Gaza shall be sh- forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday. I believe Ashdod and I think Ashkelon both were, were coast cities of the Philistines. Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, which is actually the Philistines. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So now we're seeing judgment upon nations, those who have treated Israel, God's people, in a way they just with disdain, with defiance, even now. You think about Israel. It's just this little, you know, if you look at a globe, and you need to know the pulse, the heartbeat of the world, you put your finger on Israel. Because really everything is really, in in God's economy, God's perspective, revolves around that. It's oriented around that. Now, is Israel a significant country by landmass? They're almost irrelevant. They're states bigger than Israel. So are they significant in any other natural way, if you would? They, since 1948, when they became a nation, you know, there wasn't much irrigation. There wasn't much, go, they didn't have much going for them. It's kind of a desert. It's, a, you know, we're kind of like mountain, mountain home in Israel pre-1948 are probably pretty similar. And so, but what happened? An amazing advances. They're one of the largest producers of, of fruits and vegetables and agricultural in the world. They're one of the leaders militarily in regards to technology. They've had more Nobel Peace Prize winners. There's, there's more that the intelligence level and the technology level in Israel since 1948 is over the top. They're in the top of all these different categories. It doesn't make sense. They don't have the numerics. They don't have the resources. But yet they excel in all these other. You know they're one of the wealthiest nations now? You have, they have not only natural resources, but they have all these other things they've developed and are, and are able to sell. Their, their military technology, we don't even know the level of it. We hear this Iron Dome, but they've got other things that are not even introduced, not even presented. And they think, man, here are all these countries just bad-mouthing them and treating them like they're just these, you know, they're terrible. And yet, they're amazing in how they're able to defend themselves. Can we agree? If you've studied their history, you have to know there's got, there's got to be an intervention by God. I say all that because even in this day, the people of that day just despise them. They look down on them. They're the most hated nation historically. 
for no apparent reason. It's just because, quite honestly, I could get into a lot of different things, but part of it is just God said, you're my people, and I will reveal grace and hope and truth through you. I will, I will show you that I'm a kind and compassionate and forgiving and, and loving God, and I will lead you. And other nations will know this is how I will lead you. And then, of course, Israel said, yeah, but, you know, even though he did all that, and to which even showed his grace even more. Because, you know, remember what was said about David when about the child dies? There was an issue there because he, God said that this child will give the nations reason to revile or basically speak evil against Israel, I think he actually allowed that child to be with him in protection of the child that was conceived in this uh, adulterous relationship. But my point being, you know, um, God is looking out for his people and he's letting his name be known. And it's been known in the Old Testament. It's even today where you have people that are opposing, their, their enemies of him, of God and the Israel, but they will, they will eat their words. They will find themselves shamed by what they said and what they tried to do, and they were utterly de- demolished, completely defeated. Verse 10, they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, meaning overpowering, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. Each one from his place, people will, shall worship God, shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. I believe that has a strong flavor or directive uh, understanding of speaking of the millennial kingdom and what's going to happen at that time when you consider the declaration that's being made there. Moving on through the chapter, we see you, sh- you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my, they were a strength, you shall be slain by my sword. They were a powerhouse at that time. He will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. Remember, about Nineveh, it's a big city. You know, it, was, it was the, the glorious city. It was the city of the, of the ancient world. It took three days to travel across it, we're told, from the book of Jonah. So here's this phenomenal city, and he says, you know, he's going to stretch his hand again. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge in the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there's none besides me. How shall she become a desolation? Oh, how has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. This is when he's speaking this, he's speaking that this is to come. That helps us reconcile that this prophecy, of course, was given before the destruction of Nineveh, which we know took place in 612 BC. And so let's continue on. We're going to look at the wickedness of Jerusalem because he's now said cry out to me, and then he says, I know your enemies, but he's also going to say, but I know you too. I know how you are. I know what what you guys have done. Woe to her who was rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city, speaking of Jerusalem. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. There's three things right there that have a practical, personal application in every generation for every one of us, even as Christians, to consider. 
It says that Jerusalem had not received correction. If you cannot receive correction, you've rejected lordship, right? I mean, lordship means he gets to correct and direct and to comfort and, and to lead. And so, you know, sometimes I've had, I've had issues, you know, and I had a friend that's, that is still pastoring a church. And, you know, we were talking with each other, and he was just really taking a hit and really having a tough go of things. And within the church, there was a lot of bickering and a lot of people kind of complaining about the leadership. And I knew the situation, and I, I said to him, I said, you got to realize it's got nothing to do with leadership. It's got everything to do with lordship. Because they're not listening to the Lord, so you're going to be the one they're going to blame. And I knew some, sometimes it is leadership. I'm not saying that's a blanket truth, but you see what I'm saying? There was an issue of lordship, and they were not receiving, the people were not receiving correction. So same thing for you and I. I want to make sure that I receive correction. You don't get to describe what the correction is to me. You may be accurate, you may be a voice, but it's between me and the Lord. Can we agree on that? Because he will correct us. And he does it in a very, very perfect and, and usually a gentle way initially. It's kind of like a parent does. A parent says, I told you not to do that. Do not do that. You're like, you mean today? No, I mean don't do that. But tomorrow, I, I told you, do not do that. But just what if I did it this way? You know, I mean, I, I, there's a point where God says, I told you do not do it. Do not do it. There's a correction. Not only did we see Jerusalem had not received correction, she had not trusted in the Lord, which is sometimes why you don't receive correction. But if I give in that way, or if I live in this manner, or I serve in that fashion, then I don't know how it'll work out. But when you trust the Lord, you realize that's how you grow. That's how you, you literally grow. You step out in what you sense to be his direction and correction. You take a step and say, Lord, I don't know if this is you or me. I don't know if I'm doing what I should be doing, but I'm going to step out. And I'm gonna show me how to trust you. You know, maybe you guys can relate to this, but I know you can. So you ever had an idea, but you weren't sure what it was your idea or his idea? You know, maybe it's just a way to serve or to do something. And I look at it this way. I have, a, I have to just try to figure out, is it, is it my idea, is it imagination, or is it inspiration? So it could just be an idea, an observation. He gives us, you know, where it says in Hebrews that we, by reason of use, we have our senses sharpened. So we see this is how we should do something in a sense of spiritually and with integrity according to his direction. It could just be an idea. It might be imagination. Like, oh, that'd be kind of cool if I did that, then maybe this would happen. So I can't tell the difference sometimes between all three of them. But what I rely on is like, give me the inspiration, that sense of your presence and somehow your stamp, your thumbprint, your identity on it as they move forward with it. So I usually just try to move forward with caution, but I never try to just sit back and wait. Because I think that, I don't know, have you ever tried to turn a car without moving it? You know, the old style, they didn't have, the, you just try to turn the wheel or anything. It's neat. When it's moving, you can turn it. And I kind of take that little simple crude analogy and realize, okay, God, you, you want to move, you want to direct, you want to do something? I want to be led by you. I want to be trusted in you. And it says, Jerusalem had not drawn near to her God. When you're corrected and you're learning to walk and learning what trust is, you find yourself drawing nearer to God. It's almost the result of the full first two, but it doesn't always happen. You can be corrected and go forward, but still rely on yourself. 
you can find yourself not drawing near to God. So there's such a powerful principle, an important thing for us to understand, embedded within this rebuke, if you would, because this is what Israel, Jerusalem wasn't doing. Let's move on to verse 3. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. It just speaks they're greedy. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave not a bone till morning. It speaks of the principle is being practiced in our nation right now with the Supreme Court and with our judicial system and our political mess and all these things. They're greedy. They're like wolves. They're, they're not true to the format and the structure that's established, which happens, and you can just look at it in almost every uh, governmental system, whether it's you know monarchy or you get it. You got all those different things. So it's happening now. It happened then. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've turned it into a money pit. They've turned it into a profit center. They turned it into an adulterous pit. Verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. I've underlined, he never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. The unjust will don't quit. I have cut off nations, verse 6. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate, with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction, so that her dwelling would not be cut off. Despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. So you see this weird thing that just keeps happening in a parallel almost in a greater degree, but to those who complained when he provided while they were wandering in the wilderness. Let's continue in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord. Now, now he's speaking to the faithful remnant, those who are in the nation numerically, but they're not in alignment spiritually. Their relationship is with the living God. And they understand what it means to walk with him. They're, they're a, a small minority, um, a remnant. Wait for me until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will, will restore to the peoples a pure language. Then all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. You know that is speaking um, of the end times as well. And that time we read about in Revelation, this, this time when he reigns victorious and conquers those who defy him and reject him. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and shall no longer be haughty. In my holy mountain I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. Speaking of God's faithfulness in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. You and I look forward to that time. It's the time of a new heaven and a new earth. 
they were looking forward to his presence and his power bringing, you know, um, truth and justice. But they end up going through a very, very difficult time of uh, captivity before they experience his his, um, breakthrough, if you would. We were obviously looking to this uh, time when all that we know, that we no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. Verse 16 in that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's not something that he waits to do. That's something that he continually does. It's something that's happening we, because we're in our circumstances and challenges and temporal life. We, we have a hard time seeing it, but God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't see, oh, let's say, man, I just can't wait till Revelation 21. He's living it at the, at the same time. It's really, it's a, it's a complexity. It's an enigma that we can't work out the reality of the riddle. How can he be aware of that and aware of this and aware of what we're reading about all at the same time to be outside of time where he's not, you know, we're just, we're just stuck in situation to situation until we depart. Agreed? And sometimes we're excited and it's great, and other times it sucks. Wait, I'm not supposed to say that. It's a vacuum effect on your life. So you're just kind of like, ah. And so, but he, he's, he's always this way. He's always rejoicing. He's always, you know, expressing love. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with his singing, with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom it is a reproach, whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. And at that time, I will bring you back. Even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord, the captivity they're going to experience He's telling them before it even unfolds before their eyes. I, I'm in control. I will take you back. You will, you will experience my victory, my power, my authority in your life. But they will go through a hard time. They will go through a very intense time. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. For the simplicity and yet the beauty, but most of all, what you show us, that you are faithful. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful for you you do not stop being yourself, Lord. Thank you, God. And that you, God, would um, correct us and direct us. That you would awaken us and, and keep us close to you, Lord. We admit we need your help in these areas. We cannot rely on our own determination or our own emotion, our own want to just stay close to you. The things we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we find ourselves doing is so clearly declared in Romans. It's really what we experience. So, God, I would ask for myself and for everyone hearing this, Lord, that you would be free to reign in our hearts, that we in no way inhibit or interfere. And we believe, God, you are bigger than even our interference. We believe that you brought grace and hope and truth to us before we were even looking for it because you're just a gracious and kind and loving God. And so teach us your ways. Fill us with the knowledge of your presence empower us according to your purpose that you would be glorified and we would experience your touch and your joy. 
In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Next week, we will look at Haggai. Haggai.